Let me pray with pray for us, and then um, we'll turn to Acts chapter twenty-three. But let's pray. Gracious God, our heavenly Father and Creator, we thank you for your faithful provision to your people, that you didn't leave us to die in our sin and transgressions, but you made a pathway of life through the giving of your Son, Jesus Christ, that he, uh, in fulfillment of the law, would take our sins upon us as punishment, but also in fulfillment of the law, that he would clothe us with that perfect righteousness which the law demands. We thank you for your gift of the Spirit to guide your church and to unite us uh, to Jesus and to guide us into all truth concerning him. And so we ask for that spirit this morning to teach us the same spirit that caused Luke to write these words is the same spirit that guides us into all truth this day. Show us um, uh, your truth. Show us how we should be faithful witnesses to our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, even in the midst of hostility and opposition. And in doing so, knowing all along that you are our sovereign God who guides and protects us and will lead us safely to our eternal home. Teach us, we pray, in the name of Christ, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. All right, so turn to uh, Acts chapter 23. And while, you'll, while you turn there, um, I'll just remind us, or for those of you who haven't been with us, to give you a sense of where we are in the book of Acts. So the last few chapters of Acts have described Paul's purposeful intent, intent to arrive in Jerusalem by the time of Pentecost, despite the knowledge he had been given that he would be arrested and bound in Jerusalem. When he arrived in that city, James and the Jerusalem elders inform him that there were distortions circulating, false stories that um, said Paul taught Jews to forsake Moses by not having children circumcised or observing Jewish customs. So to counter these rumors, Paul agreed to accompany and aid four men who were undergoing ritual purification in relation to fulfilling a vow. When in the temple going through these purification um, uh, um, procedures with these men, some men from Asia who had earlier seen Paul in the company of an Ephesian uh, accused Paul of desecrating the temple by bringing foreigners into it. Um, this sparked a riot um, which dragged Paul from the temple and would have killed him if not for the intervention of a Roman cohort which quickly arrived and dragged Paul away not so much to save him, but to you know, end this public disturbance. Um, the Tribune, uh, apparently, as we saw last week, thought Paul was an insurrectionist Egyptian who had never been located in the prior years um, after his defeat near the Mount of Olives. But learning that Paul was a Jew from Tarsus, the Roman Tribune, again, whose main job uh, was to keep the peace, um, allowed Paul to address the crowd. And initially, uh, this procedure seemed to work. The, the crowd was quieted, 
And then they were quieted even more when Paul addressed them in a Hebrew tongue. Um, we also talked about last week, uh, looked at Paul's defense. And he defended himself not by focusing on the immediate charge that he brought a Gentile into the temple, but by giving his personal testimony that he had lived his life as a faithful Jew. Indeed, that he was an educated Pharisee who studied at the foot or feet of the most prominent um, pharisaical teacher, Gamaliel. Um, he gave personal testimony that um, he once pursued and persecuted the followers of Jesus. Until, uh, and then Paul goes on to describe what changed in his life, and what changed was a blinding encounter with the glory of God and the voice um, and vision of the resurrected Jesus on the way to Damascus. And that it was the God of their fathers who turned them into a follower of Christ. Paul's arguing that he is being faithful to God and preaching Jesus as the fulfillment of divine promises of old. Um, after Damascus, Paul says he wanted to stay and minister in Jerusalem. He thought he'd have credibility in that city since he um, was known as a persecutor of the new community. Um, that he had participated and gave uh, his um, acquiescence, support in the death of Stephen. Um, but the Lord told Paul that he had another calling. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul's defense is basically that he, he was where the crowd is now. He was once a persecutor. It's only God's direction that has made him otherwise. It's the faithfulness to God of their fathers that compelled him to go preach among the Gentiles. With the mention uh, that Israel's God had called him to invite Gentiles into blessing, the crowd reacted loudly and visibly, no doubt feeling confirmed about Paul's pro-Gentile attitudes. The tribune had enough. <laughs> Um, he ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks. He had him bound and intended to beat the truth out of him um, until Paul strategically announced that he was a Roman citizen against whom it was a crime to bind or flog without prior trial. Um, so these events in Jerusalem set the stage for chapter 23, which documents Paul's appearance before the Jewish council, the unfolding of a dedicated plot to kill Paul and finally, his nighttime relocation by the Romans out of Jerusalem into Caesarea. So we'll actually start our reading with this very last verse of chapter 22. Or of chapter 22. Um, it's verse 30, and then we'll read through the entirety of chapter 23. Hear now the word of our God. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? 
Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you are going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they are accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you 
what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go out with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he had learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arise. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant word. May he open it in our hearts and minds as we discuss it this day. So, um, the Roman tribune brings Paul before the Sanhedrin to get to the bottom of it. That phrase, he desired to know the real reason, is you know, the equivalent of our saying, it's a difficult situation, let's dig a little deeper and get to the bottom of things. But at the council, Paul hardly begins to speak before the high priest orders him to be struck. So um, let's start by focusing on this encounter between Paul and the high priest um, uh, before the council. Um, so, yeah, what's going on in this encounter with the high priest? What do we learn um, from both Paul being struck and then how he responds to being struck and then how he responds to be being rebuked for complaining he was struck? Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, and to strike someone in this way, um, later Jewish tradition says you could only strike a fellow Jew for speaking something against God. So, you know, the statement of Paul that he has a clear conscience, he's lived his life before God, you know, in clear, good conscience all his life, that statement alone, um, the high priest sees as um, a statement against the God of their fathers. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really quick. Um, and Luke is probably, like, condensed. <laughs> uh, you know, as we often see, we're not getting the entirety of speeches or events like he's giving us, you know, um, his, his condensation or, con yeah, his, his version of it um, for us to grasp. But, you know, what he's trying to emphasize, though, you're, you're exactly right. Paul barely began to even start, and hadn't even really gotten into the meat of, like we saw last week, like, you know, where Paul started with that lengthy description, you know, giving his Jewish credentials, um, and he hadn't even been able to, given a chance to give his Jewish credentials here, and the high priest orders him struck. Yeah, so he orders someone else to do it, so he's not physically doing it. Um, but that's Paul's response. Who are you to, to, you know, you have no authority to strike me in this way. Um, it's against the law of God. And so it's the, you know, he says there, are you, going, are you sitting to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law, order me to be struck? So from Paul's, where Paul's sitting, yes, this, this command has violated the law of God. So here he's in a tribunal that's intended to uphold the law of God, and contrary to that law, he's been struck, um, 
without due cause. What else would you say about this encounter with the high priest? So Paul gets struck. Uh, some people wonder if, you know, just a little fit of temper on Paul's part. <laughs> by, you know, he literally calls a curse upon him, um, you know, by saying, um, you know, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Um, yeah, what do we make of make of that? Um, whitewashed wall? That's not in our usual uh, panoply of insults, but uh, maybe we can add that one in. Somewhere I have a book, you know, Shakespeare's insults. So, you know, maybe we can have Paul's insults. But, uh, yeah, what's Paul accusing the high priest of in this? Ronnie? Yeah, so very similar to what Jesus had told to the Pharisees. Like he's accusing, um, he's accusing the high priest of being whitewashed, having a beautiful outward appearance. Um, but in Jesus' statement, you know, inside it's, it's dead bones. Like, you know, it looks good from the outside, but inside it's, it's death, it's emptiness. Um, and in a similar way, like, you know, it's, you're a whitewashed wall. Um, you look good on the outside, but there's nothing. There's no depth. Um, it's kind of like uh, if you remember when um, China hosted the Olympic Games. Like throughout Beijing, they built false building fronts to hide, you know, basically slums. Like so, they didn't want Western journalists coming and being critical. Of them, and so they literally built empty facades um, to hide what was really behind. <laughs> um, and that's what Paul—it looks good on the outside, but it's emptiness behind. Like there's no depth to it. There's no substance to you. So, um, so then, so Paul insults the high priest, um, and then the council rebukes him. So, what do we do with Paul's statement? You know, he, he pleads ignorance. I, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak of a ruler, uh, speak evil of a ruler of your people. How, how is it that Paul, you know, could make this, this plead ignorance in this case? Do we believe him? <laughs> um, yeah, what's going on there? So Paul's actually saying, yeah, you're right. I, I shouldn't speak evil of a ruler of the people. I shouldn't speak evil of the high priest. I didn't know that he was the, it was the high priest who ordered me struck. Like, yeah, how, how do we get to that point? Yeah, Bill. Yeah, so one way to understand it is Paul is responding to the circumstances that had just taken place, and it's inconceivable for him that the high priest would order such a, an action to be taken place. So one way people have understood it is exactly that way, Bill, that you know, like Paul is reacting to the action 
that's just taken place. Um, and it's almost inconceivable for him that a high priest would order that. Others? Like, well, I could be. Yeah, Ronnie. Yeah, so, um, and, and relatedly, uh, so some people have, 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 like, said it could be Paul's eyesight problems, which, you know, later we know, like, he talks, see what large hand I write you in, that Paul had some eye troubles. Um, so he didn't see who spoke the order. Um, similarly, other people said he didn't actually hear the order given. He only, you know, as Bill said, felt this, 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 who, you know, what are you slapping me for? <laughs> like, who, you know, who gave the order for that? Um, he didn't hear the order, so either he didn't see or didn't hear, so some people, yeah, sensory deprivation um, defense. Others? What else? Why else might it be? I've got five, so, <laughs> or at least five. There are probably more, but I found five <laughs> when I was trying to figure this out. Yes, sir? <laughs> no, that's a great question. And um, one of the other ways people have kind of talked about this is that Paul is actually being ironic here by saying, yeah, you have the position of a high priest, but you, you've divorced your position from the law of God. That, you know, like, he, he's a high priest, but he's no true high priest because he's following his will and not God's will. Like, so, um, so and as we think about this, like, that, that seems to be the kind of consistent message of the New Testament. We're supposed to give respect and honor to our authorities as far as they are in keeping with the law of God. They can't command us to do something contrary to the law of God. So that might be one, you know, if you take that interpretation, um, that might be one way to apply these words. But, but yeah, some people have sort of said, it's, as you say, it, the high priest or the ruler's authority is connected to their upholding the law of God. And so when they've ceased to do that, Paul is basically accusing them of here. He's saying, you're no longer a real high priest. Um, but, um, but he is upholding the law. 
Um, so, like, he's upholding the principle. You know, he's the one who quotes it. You shall not speak evil of a rule of your people. And so he's upholding that, that principle, you know, that a ruler of God's people should not be spoken of, ill of in this way. Um, anything else we want to say about this part? Oh, hold on. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think in the biblical con context, um, you know, that command um, from, from Exodus. So it's Exodus 22, 28. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Um, I mean, I, again, I think it's, I think the principle established, I mean, I think it's primarily about you know, in the context, you know, uh, of, of fidelity to God. Um, so it, you shouldn't curse God's representative. Um, we can apply that principle, I think, because, again, the New Testament says that, you know, God has appointed our rulers over us. Even in a democracy that we've elected them, um, God is still the one who controls all things. And it doesn't mean we're, like, you know, sheep that, that have no voice, but it, it, that, principle should, um, that principle should dictate how we go about dissent or how we go about criticizing a ruler, recognizing um, maybe if, if we don't like the particular resident, you know, who, we don't like who our current senator is, for example, maybe. Like, we still rep rep respect the office of senator. Like, I, I disagree with the person, I disagree with that person's politics, I think they're wrong, but they were elected, they have power. So, like, you know, that there's a balance between respecting an office um, but disagreeing with an office holder's policies. Um, but as was stated, it gets, you know, it's a little, you know, these, these, principles weren't being given in the context of a democracy. So it, it is a little bit more of a challenge for us to apply them in a democratic, republican society versus, you know, a hierarchical, um, top-down kind of monarchy that we see here. Yeah, Brian. Right. No, great point. And, and he's, again, like, you know, um, it's one thing to, to criticize, it's another thing to like, you know, damn someone to hell, um, you know. And again, I think we gotta watch our, our language. Sometimes we can fall into the cursing aspect in ways that, um, yeah, isn't healthy. Um, because as we see here, even among Paul's opponents, like he, he can appeal to them in certain ways. Um, even with those who disagree with them. And that's what I you know, always tell, tell people. Like, At the end of the day, it's still a person in the image of God. They might be doing something contrary to God's law, but you know, um, it, it's God who, who gets to decide it's who to curse and who to bless. Yeah, Kathy. 
Um, I think it's like that testimony we saw in the prior chapter, this, this claim of Paul's that it's the same God who is the God of Israel, um, the God of their fathers, is the God who has sent him to the Gentiles. So, and he's saying, I have a clear conscience. There is no doubt in my mind that every action I've taken, whether it was to be a Pharisee or to be a persecutor of the church or to be a Christian going to the Gentiles, um, has been done in faithfulness to God's law. Um, you know, and, and that, that claim, I mean, that's the heart of what his message has been that you can be faithful to the Jewish law and still be a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, and it's that second half of that you know, statement like that is a bridge too far for them. Um, that you can be a faithful Jew and still proclaim the good news of the God of our fathers to Gentiles. That's just antithetical. So for him to sort of stand up and say, you know, it's like Luther, here I stand, I can't do otherwise, like, you know, um, you know it's, he, he's made a declaration of his position <laughs> that the high priest disagrees with. So let's get into um, the, this, um, yeah, ruckus <laughs> that Paul causes in the Jewish council. So, um, Paul states that he's really being tried for his being a Pharisee who believes in the hope and resurrection of the dead. So, it, you know, and Luke tells us, Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. So Paul knows his audience, and he intentionally gives this statement um, that one half of the room will come, you know, will react to, and the other half will react against. So what's Paul doing here? Is he just kind of intentionally stirring up trouble? Like, you know, sometimes I do this with my brothers and sisters. Like, you know, I'll say something just because I know it's going to get them riled up just to cause trouble. Is that what he's doing? He just wants to cause trouble? Or does he have some um, deeper purpose in mind here? Because he definitely stirs up trouble. <laughs> Yeah, right. Okay, so he's saying something to like, let's just bring these, yeah. I'm, you know, I was struck after one sentence. <laughs> I'm not going to get a fair hearing in this council. And, you know, how can I quickly bring it to an end? So he stirs the pot. All right, so that's one pathway. What else might he be up to? Yeah, he, you know, that's why he's there. He's a witness to the risen Jesus Christ. And that, you know, we saw, um, you know, like Peter's uh, address on the day of Pentecost. He gives this long history 
um, you know, of, of Old Testament. He recounts the hopes of the Old Testament that have come to fruition at that moment with the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus risen and ascended. And notice how council members come to his defense. Um, and even going so far, like again, this is the tribunal that's there to help the Romans decide what to do with this guy, this Jewish council. The tri tribune has come to the Jewish council. All right, what's going on here? Let's get to the bottom of this. And Paul has gotten half the council to declare, um, we find nothing wrong in this man. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's on the record, you know, that, that half the people in the room find there's nothing. It doesn't mean they believe in Jesus, but, you know, what Paul, they're agreeing that what Paul is saying is possible in the light of Jewish teaching, you know, maybe a spirit or angel did speak to him. Like, it's possible. Um, you know, we can't just dismiss it out of hand. And then you've got these Sadducees who say there's no resurrection, all this kind of, you know, spiritual creature things, all that's just kind of fanciful stuff. Um, you know, it's all bunk. Um, and so, you know, he, he does put these parties against each other, other and, and creates a disturbance. But he also gets one half of the council to proclaim, well, if that's what he's teaching, there's nothing wrong with it. That is consistent with belief in, um, in the Hebrew scriptures. So um, from a, uh, if he's being cagey in that way, like, he's just kind of maneuvered half the council members to, to declare him there's nothing wrong with this man, um, to get a proclamation of innocence. So he does more than just bring the council to an end. Like, he gets them, or at least one part of them, one sect of Jews, to realize that the truths of Christianity are consistent with the teachings of the, the Hebrew Scriptures. Yeah, so there's this conflict there. And Paul makes a statement that one side of that conflict is going to agree with. Um, and in the presence of their opponents arguing the contrary, you know, it's like, um, you know, yeah, it's like anything. Like, you get somebody disagreeing with you, it makes you more resolute <laughs> in, in your opinion. And... Um, and that's the way, you know, it was. Like, you know, he, once Paul sparks this and the disagreement comes, they start to support Paul more and more um, in, you know, to the extent of proclaiming him innocent of, of, of doing anything. There's nothing wrong with this man. Um, and uh, it's, a, no, it's really, he knows his audience. Like, um, theologically, he knows his audience. But the point he's been trying to get across since he's been in Jerusalem is that there is nothing inconsistent with being a follower of Jesus Christ um, and, and being Jewish. Like, you know, you can be Jewish 
and be a follower of the law and still be a faithful follower of Jesus because Jesus is the fulfillment of that law. Jesus is what that law promised. Um, the whole thing had been pointing toward him. And some in Judaism recognized it, you know, recognized the principles, even if they didn't recognize Jesus. That, you know, he's, Paul is getting them to see that there's nothing inconsistent with his message um, and the proclamation of Jesus Christ as risen Lord. Other things we want to say about uh, Paul's, uh, Paul and the council here? Okay. Um, so let's move to the next uh, story. So um, once again, Paul creates a little disturbance. <laughs> um, the Romans come to his rescue. Um, they take him, and that night, um, I love, it's just a little one verse um, where the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So, you know, in between these two episodes, the council proceedings and then this plot against Paul, we have this just one verse appearance of the Lord to Paul in his, um, you know, in his cell and saying, take courage, you know, you, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so, you know, God authenticating what Paul has just been saying in the last two chapters, so also you'll get a chance to testify to me in Rome. So, um, again, which is where the book has been going, this trip to Jerusalem and then to Rome. Um, Meanwhile, <laughs> so we have God authenticating, appearing to Paul and authenticating what Paul has done and providentially saying, you're going to keep doing it um, at the center of this Roman Gentile world. Um, so you've got God's design in, in verse um, 11, and then in 12 you get, start getting the plot of men with this vow to kill so what does Luke want to emphasize in this episode that documents this Jewish conspiracy and, and the word conspiracy or plot? You know, it is clearly a conspiracy to kill Paul. So yeah, what's going on in this episode that makes it, um, again, not just in terms of we need it to understand how the narrative moves along, how Paul gets to Caesarea, but yeah, what's going on here that, that Luke wants us to understand? Yeah, God's already said he's going to Rome. So, um, you know, uh, why do the people's plot in vain? <laughs> um, you know, it's that kind of idea. Like, they're making their plans and, you know, they're making a vow. They're not going to eat or drink until it's done. Like, they're super serious about that. Um, but we've already been told <laughs> you know, in the narrative structure, we already know God's just told Paul, you're going to Rome, <laughs> and you're going to bear witness to me there. So it's this ir irony of these men getting together, thinking that they can uh, arrange circumstances in a way to bring about their plot's successful end, and, and it's all 
vanity. It's emptiness. It's not going to come to pass. Um, it's a good question. They, they, you know, they're clearly zealous, um, you know, to kill Paul. And there are zealots in Jerusalem at this time. Like um, we're moving toward, um, you know, the open Jewish rebellion that's going to lead to the destruction of the temple and um, Jerusalem. You know, we're about a little about a decade away from that. Um, again, this is happening around 58. 59, depending on how you date the governorship of Felix. Um, so we know it's, you know, we're just a little over a decade away from, um, you know, open rebellion against the Roman state to the extent Rome comes in and just wipes the slate clean. So it's been building, and it's getting worse. And Governor Felix, that's part of the reason he actually gets recalled um, as we'll see in, in coming chapters, when he gets replaced, he's replaced, um, Luke doesn't talk about this, but we from, know from other documents, he's replaced because he's seen as being ineffective at keeping Jewish rebellion down. So they could be um, Jewish zealots. Um, they are clearly in consultation with the Sanhedrin. Notice they're going to, um, they're going to the high priest or the chief priests and elders and said, so they're going to those leaders and saying, this is what we have vowed to do, help us by, you know, telling the Roman tribune. So they're, they're not among the 40 who are plotting to kill Paul, but they are conspirators um, in the fact that they are agreeing to this deception saying they want to they wanna talk to Paul again to get him out of the Roman barracks to make him come to the council chambers, and Paul, you know, with the intention, Paul's never going to get there. It's like, you know, the law and order uh, episode where the lawyer calls for a witness because he knows that he's got an assassin who's going to kill the witness on his way to the courtroom. Like, so he never really intended for the guy to witness. Um, you can ask my kids, like that boom, boom noise, like uh, that starts law and order episodes. Um, uh, it's, I don't watch a lot of television, but who look, Law and Order. I, I mainly do it to drive them crazy, but um, they're like, Dad. Um, but it's that, you know, so it's not Sanhedrin members who are, um, you know, the ones who are making the vow, but it's, you know, Luke's clear the Sanhedrin or members of the Sanhedrin are in on the plot, you know, by arranging the circumstances by which Paul will come um, you know, getting him out of this, you know, where he's safe now, behind, you know, within the Roman barracks, out in the open, where these 40 men can rush upon his Roman guard and kill Paul. Yes, sir. Yeah. So from the eyes of the viewers, if the Jews, 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 if the Jews
Yeah. No, it's a great question. Um, I think, one, you know, his Roman citizenship absolutely has everything to do with it. And the fact that they'd already violated that citizenship in the last chapter by having Paul bound. Like, they've already gone too far um, uh, um, in violating his Roman citizenship. And then once he declares it, they're like, um, you know. Um, so, in a sense, by waiting till they've bound him, um, Paul has, has gained some political or negotiating capital with them because he knows that they've done something um, illegal. Um, so, in a sense, they're in Paul's debt. He could have them charged for violating his rights as a Roman citizen. And we see the, the Tribune, like, you know, rewriting history a little bit, like, uh, the man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Like, you know, I went out and saved him because of a Roman citizen. When, you know, Luke told us in the prior chapter, he only learned he was a Roman citizen after the fact. <laughs> um, so, you know, he, he's emphasizing, I did my duty protecting a Roman citizen from, from these Jews. Um, so I think the Roman citizenship matters a lot. And then, yet it's, a, it's absolutely, they see it as an internal matter, Jewish matter of, of, of no consequence. You know, it's some matter of their law, their religion. But even in that, you know, he says, um, I found he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. So it seems like, one, they feel it's their need to protect him as a Roman citizen. Um, but two, as far as the facts are now, they don't see anything death-worthy that Paul's done. Um, so, um, and we'll see later on, like the Roman um, Felix's successor say, look, if Paul didn't appeal to Rome, I would have just let him go. Um, because he, he's done nothing offense-worthy. So Paul um, apparently is, is making his case to the Roman state that he, he's done nothing wrong um, and nothing worthy of death, and that the troublemakers are on the opposite side. Technically, no. <laughs> so that power... Yep. Yeah, and, and that's here, like this plot to kill somebody, like they are doing, they're committing an injustice. They're going against the law. Um, and the Romans are all about law and order. <laughs> um, you know, not the TV show, but the, but the reality. Like they want a, they want that Pax Romana. They want a peaceful Mediterranean because that makes good commerce. That makes them you know, wealthy, that's how they help, uh, you know, justifies their power. Um, and here, you know, we're at the kind of edges of the Roman world, like we talked about last week. It's not the, uh, the most desired, <laughs> if you're a Roman tribune um, and you get your assignment handed to you, 
it's not the one you would have picked. You know, you would have been like, ah. So I'll go, I'll do my job. But um, so they're not really happy to be there. And so they don't, usually don't look favorably on people that cause them trouble. And as they come to see the case, it's not Paul that's the troublemaker. Like, you know, it's these guys. I mean, I, you can almost see the Tribune when Paul's nephew comes to him and tells the plot. Like, seriously? <laughs> you know, these people, like, you know, can't they just let the justice processes roll? Like, why do they feel like, you know, they're going to, you know, take law into their own hands and kill a man who, you know, as he says in his letter, done nothing deserving of death, um, nothing deserving of this degree of condemnation. It did work with Jesus, um, which, yeah, and the words, um, there are a lot of parallels in the language Luke uses here with, with Jesus. Like, I mean, even Pilate says, you know, this man's done nothing worthy of, of death. Um, you know, this guy's innocent. Um, but, you know, to help keep the peace with the Jews, turns him over to the crowd. You got a different guy on the, <laughs> who, uh, who, yeah. Um, so may, some of it might be the different political situation. 25 years after Jesus, the Jews have made themselves even more troublesome and catering to their wants hasn't gotten the Romans anywhere. So maybe, <laughs> yep. And the Jews, again, it's not a sudden, um, you know, things are fine and then they stomp on them. The Jews, it's escalating, the Jewish rebellion. No. <laughs> the, the Jews, you know, and the zealots uh, within Judaism are gaining in power and strength and being increasingly troublesome. They actually kill, um, and to go back to, yeah, Paul calls a curse on this high priest. We could say the curse comes true when that high priest was killed by the zealots for being too cooperative with the Romans. Um, so, um, so this high priest, um, hold on, I've got the date. Um, uh, so this high priest, where is he? Uh, I know I wrote it down. So in AD 58 or 59, so you know, roughly right after Paul's imprisonment, this high priest is killed by zealots for seen as being too cooperative with the Rome, two pro-Roman. Um, so the zealots are making, their power is growing, the anti-Roman sentiment is growing. So that might be some of it, but you're absolutely right in sort of pointing the parallels to, to Christ because Luke is intentionally using the same language he used in the Gospel of Luke to describe Jesus. Um, and what are the differences? Well, the Israel's in a different political position now, a quarter century later, but even more, Paul's a Roman citizen, and, and he's already um, kind of maneuvered the Roman state to come to his, to his aid because they were about to violate his Roman citizenship. So he made violation of his citizenship like an issue um, from the beginning. And so in this letter, like, you know, that's what, um, uh, that's what Claudius is emphasizing in his letter, that... It, I came to the defense of a Roman citizen who is being plotted against by
by the Jews. Um, and so he sends them to Caesarea, which is much firm, more firmly Gentile territory, Roman territory. Paul's much safer there than he is in Jerusalem. But now, and, and we'll talk about this, this next week, um, you know, he, he's there for, for two years um, with no movement in his case. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Paul is simultaneously a prisoner um, of the Romans and being protected by the Romans all at the same time um, when he's in Caesarea, which is an interesting situation to be in. Um, all right, we're, we're at time, but yeah, Becky, you have... Two years is a long time. <laughs> but, but it reminds me of the situation where Saul is in prison. Yeah, and clearly they're they're making a vow to God to do something God doesn't want them to do. Again, it's that irony, and that's why I think Luke puts that statement of God appearing to Paul, and then the next day, these people, you know, God tells Paul, you're going to Rome. I'm going to keep you safe. You're going to Rome. And, and these other people are making a vow to God to kill Paul. So, like, they're going, they're making a vow to do something that, that God doesn't want them to do, um, as we just saw, but also that God, that goes against God's law, you know, committing an unjust act by killing someone you know, without, without cause. Um, all right, well, let me uh, close this in prayer, and we'll continue with Paul's story next week when he makes his defense before Governor Felix and Caesarea. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do thank you for your providential care, as we see it here, that um, Paul is in the hands of um, Roman soldiers and... Um, Paul's life is being threatened, threatened by Jewish plotters, but you're the one who's directing him to Rome so that you, he could be a witness to you there, that he could testify to the risen uh, Savior, Jesus Christ, the living Son of God, um, God in the flesh, who uh, took on that flesh that we might have life and life eternally that your good news that you proclaimed in the Old Testament is a light to the nations and that you used Paul, even in his imprisonment, to be that light um, or to be a light um, in, this, in keeping with your purposes. Help us rejoice in your care for us. Give us wisdom to how we navigate um, faithfully um, our own uh, situation in the world where uh, your name has increasingly come into disfavor. Um, and indeed, it's increasingly likely that we could um, suffer or we could come to trial for our faith. Um, encourage us, give us courage um, to be faithful witnesses to you as you've called us to be by the power of your Spirit. Help us now as we gather in the coming hour to worship you. Uh, may your spirit um, be fully uh, in us and among us as we give you all glory, praise, and honor. For you alone, O oh God, deserve it. 
Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.